Hey everybody, welcome to episode 58 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back. Welcome aboard. On today's show, we speak with Santa Barbara natives, Danielle and Brian Monroy. They are a married couple and parents who, within the last few years, have become highly involved in canyoneering and are respected canyon leaders by many in this community. We will talk about how they got into canyoneering, why they fell in love with the activity, and the many places they have traveled to do canyons, including various places in Europe and the Pacific Northwest. We will also discuss C-Class Canyoneering, which is specifically big water canyons, those with large waterfalls, large swims, and potentials for more danger with hydraulics, currents, and other things. But that is not all we will talk about. We will also discuss Danielle's deep disdain for webbing, especially of the blue variety. Brian Monroy, a Santa Barbara resident for the last 40-some-odd years. I work for an orthopedic office, surgery scheduling. I'm married to my wife, Danielle, for the last 31 years. And I'm Danielle, obviously, and we live here in Santa Barbara. I've been here my whole life. Grew up in the mountains here and had a very unusual childhood, which has led me to lots of time outdoors and lots of interest in outdoor sports. So you can't make a statement like I had a very unusual childhood and then just breeze past that. So let's hear about why that childhood was unusual. Well, so my parents were born in the 40s during um, World War II and went kind of through that hippie movement in the 60s when I was born but not in the drug culture. They wanted to get their kids away from that, what they saw happening all around them and with their siblings. And uh, so they bought a house, bought a piece of land actually in the mountains. And my dad and, and his friends built a house of 600 square feet. And I lived there with my siblings or four of us plus our parents. So six people and 600 square uh-huh. feet. So hundred square feet per person. It was kind of more like 500 square feet for the family and 100 square feet for the four kids. We had a loft and it had room for two sets of bunk beds and one dresser with four drawers and we each had a drawer. We just didn't have a lot of stuff. We didn't have toys. Um, we were outside all day, every day. We'd get home from school and my dad would make us a big snack. He, he was a wood craftsman, so he, he worked at home. And my mom was a farmer's wife, basically a homemaker. And we'd get home from school, we'd eat, and she'd say, go outside. So we'd go outside and we'd hike and explore and crawl around in the creeks. There were some waterfalls on our property. We grew up in the Los Padres National Forest is where my family's property was. And they're still there. My little brother's actually raising his son there. But I had an interest in hiking and horses when I was really little. When I was about 12, I really wanted to have a horse. So my dad had called the the dude ranch down below us, Circle Bar B. And the owner said, yeah, send her down here. And she can uh, hang out and help out with the horses every day if she wants. So I would go down after school or on the weekends. And I would shovel manure and brush the horses from 6 a.m. till 5 p.m. And then one day after, I don't know, maybe four or five months of shoveling manure all day long, the, uh, the guy said, see that pony over there and I said yeah he goes nobody likes it you can have it and that, <laughs> so was, that it. was your that was your payment that, that was, was your reward payment. I mean it wasn't to keep but it was to ride so I rode that horribly bratty pony every day and I actually worked for that guy until I was 18 he was a, a Gino Hagen a really remarkable man and I liked him a lot uh, never had a proper horse lesson at that point but I would take the horse home at the end of the day ride it up the road up Rafiha Road and then the next morning I'd go get it and saddle it up my dad would help me and I'd ride it back down the road going back to work. Cars would pass and people were totally surprised to see this young girl on a horse riding in the middle of nowhere. But it was a great childhood and I think it's really important for me to be outside all the time. That's why with my job I run a preschool. It's an outdoor classroom and we're outside all the time. So by comparison does that mean that Brian grew up in a nudist colony or some sort of interesting commune? The complete opposite. (laughs) Uh, Middle class family, two younger siblings. Uh, My dad was the breadwinner. My mom stayed at home and we did the complete opposite. We didn't do any hiking, any camping, not exposed to anything other than just ride our bikes up and down the street, skateboard, maybe go to the beach, you know, boogie board, that kind of thing. Didn't get exposed to uh, really any surfing or water skiing until later in life for myself. So was it the two of you coming together that introduced you to that stuff or did that come about some other Uh, way? 
out some other way, actually. Even though we were all from Santa Barbara, we met at San Diego. We had a mutual friend. I went down there for some surfing, and she was a college student down there, and we met down there. And I hated going to San Diego State. It was way too big for me. Being a country girl, it was overwhelming, absolutely overwhelming. So I met him, and he was from Santa Barbara, and we hit it off. So I quit school, and we got married and had a big Catholic wedding about six months after we met. Everybody was shaking their heads at these crazy young kids because I was 20. But the next year, we uh, had our daughter, and then a year later, we bought a house, and a year later, we had our son. But we got into uh, canyoneering when our kids were almost grown. Our daughter was an avid climber, and our son is a diver, and we were trying to find a family vacation that everybody would like. So one of our mutual friends does a lot of world traveling, and they had been working on a bucket list. They'd gone to Antarctica, and they'd gone to all these amazing places. So I had asked her and her husband, you know, what was the most amazing vacation you, you had? And they said, Utah. They had rented an RV, and they had traveled Utah and gone to all the national parks. I thought, oh, that's perfect. We'll do that. Except without the RV and without the driving around, we'll go do something a little more adventuresome. And went into Zion. It was a failed effort at the Trans-Zion hike. So all yeah. of us were in Red Rock together earlier this year, and that's where I met your daughter, Claire. And I seem to recall her telling me a little bit about the failed backpacking family trip. So yeah, please relay in detail more about this trip. I'll let Brian <laughs> tell his side of it, but to introduce it, the plan was we would do five days for the Trans-Zion hike, and we would do a canyoneering class with Bill at Zion Adventure Company, and then we would run some canyons. So the Trans-Zion hike, let's get the statistics on that. What are we looking at mileage-wise? 43, miles, I think. Something like 43, something like that. You start on the far west side, and you hike down into Laverkin Creek, campsite there. So that's your first day. It's a half day. And then the next day, you get up and you hike another 13 miles or so to Cola Road, or if you can get a little further, you go to Lava Point. And that's about as far as we got. One of the member of our group was not an avid hiker, and she just got horrific blisters. It's a rookie mistake of brand new hiking shoes. So we did the first half, called Zion Adventure Company, help us. They were great. They drove out and picked us up, brought us around, and went around to the east side and camped there. And then what we basically did is we broke it up, and those of us that could hike, like Brian and my daughter Claire and I, we would just hike backwards so that we could get the whole route, but we didn't do it all in one. But normally you would hike from the far west side, and you hike across to Lava Point, and then you go down the West Rim Trail to Angel's Landing, you drop into the valley floor, you hike back up on the East Rim side towards Middle Echo. That's where Observation Point is. You get across the top and you head out on the East Rim, out past Ponderosa Ranch, where the uh, East Gate is. And ideally, you have a shuttle car waiting for you there. And that sounds like a whole lot of elevation change. Yes. Yeah. Very much so. It is. So what is, uh, what's your perspective that you're supposed to share on this, Brian? Actually, uh, day two two was, uh, you know, being not a hiker, backpacker, individual. I had a lot of struggles with it, with the elevation gain and going down the trails. But Claire, she basically jogged this. She was a trail runner. She's a trail runner. So she would take off and she had her own backpack, but then she would come back and then she'd want my backpack to help move things forward because we're kind of, you know, we're lagging. So at one point, this would have been day two, going across a hot valley. And we ran into some guys on horseback. And I asked one of them, excuse me, but did you see a little, like maybe a half pint with a backpack cruise through here maybe a little while ago and she, she said yeah actually we did and he, she's got miles on you guys <laughs> at this point we're like the rhinos from jumanji huffing exactly. and puffing up this trail so she was wishing she just solo hiked it every night is what you're saying <laughs> well she was telling us that we this you know get in shape dad mom this is a big deal this is all i do and she had a good time but then i think she was a little disappointed at the same time yeah. so she's, she's very intense the day that we went and took the canyoneering class she bailed on us and hooked up with some climber from Mountain Project and they went and climbed off the Great White Throne and they went and climbed where the tunnels are and we went and took the class and then we went and ran a canyon and I thought that was keyhole, this is it. This was the first time you'd done canyons yeah. period right? So, yeah. yeah Keyhole in Zion like a lot of canyoners was our first canyon and I was just struck. I was absolutely in love. It's like that time as a little girl, the first time I saw a horse, you know. Yeah, Keyhole's an interesting one because it has a really short approach that's oddly miserable for how short it is. And then it's different from a lot of canyons in that it almost feels like caving 
more than canyoneering. I think that's what I liked about it because I'm claustrophobic, so I have a strong fear of caves. I had done my research before we went, and Keyhole looked the most challenging for me of all the canyons in Zion because of the caveness of it. So I wanted to do that one first because I figure if that's the hard one for me mentally to get through, then I'll tackle that one first, and if I can get through that one, then I can do this. Did you find that you had any claustrophobia no. issues in nope. it? Yeah, because I'm also claustrophobic, and I don't recall Keyhole no. having any issues like that. They're so beautiful. They're so incredibly awesome and unique that when you're in them, you forget about everything. Every thing in your head, every fear, every business problem, every scheduling issue, claustrophobia, anything. And, and you know, when we did Keyhole and we did Middle Echo, it was dead elk soup time. It was late June. It was 105 outside and the canyons reeked. They smelled so bad and we didn't even notice. Yeah, that one can be so full of nasty stagnant water, but it's dark enough that you kind of can't tell. Just ignore but, it. Yeah. We were warned. Yeah. We had some of the guys in Zion Adventure Company tell us if we saw floating animal parts in there not to get too squeamish it's okay <laughs> as long as they're not floating human parts so how did that go about did they actually give you a class or was it more like they guided you through it and then you started to get a sense of what it was like it was a class it was a private class uh, specifically this- for keyhole so the ascenders that we use the figure eight they gave us the rope they let us use uh, wetsuit the shoes and everything was kind of specific for that canyon so of course for, it took me a little while to recall what they just showed us so, you know, you go up to this anchor, which I had a lot of questions. Like, this Did they train happen. you guys to rappel outside of the canyon or your first rappel uh, was in the canyon? No, as well. they take you out. Yeah, they're not allowed to do it in the park, so they took us outside the park. Yeah, they had a spot. I think the town's called Rockville, or it's just, as you're coming into Springdale, there's this town that's really like five houses that haven't yet been crushed by rocks. These huge boulders all around, and they take you to a boulder that they've bolted. You practice some stemming, you practice awkward starts, you practice a free hang. It's all very small classes you might take in Los Angeles at Stony Point without the big rappel. But I had hired Bill Westerfield. He's one of the main instructors at Zion Adventure Company for a long time, and I I just got really lucky that he was the one that I got, but I had said I have a big group. These are the canyons we were going to do. It was kind of customed for our group. It was a great class. He basically could have taught us all day, but he taught us until he felt like, okay, we've we've got enough information swimming around in our brain. Now we want to go do a canyon. No, I think that's cool because the first time I ever did anything, it was San Antonio Falls, and it was with ATS back when ATS used to do canyons. There was no education to it. It was more like they guided you through it, and you kind of picked up what you picked up along the way. So it was cool that they actually took you out to a rock, taught you some basic skills, prepared you to rappel outside the yep. canyon, and then you kind of were able to move on from there. So you do that. They take you through Echo. I mean, I'm sorry, not Echo. Keyhole. Keyhole. They don't, though. They You take the class, and they say goodbye. Oh, really? Yeah, they, oh, because yeah. yeah. they're not allowed to oh, no. guide you through yeah, Keyhole, they, right? You can have them take you through something outside the park, like Water Canyon. or No, they, they send you on your merry way if they feel like you've got the skill, which they felt very comfortable with the group of us. So we went, and our daughter, who hadn't done the class, and the climber that she'd been with, they joined us in Keyhole. Not Echo, though. You know, we had a good time. It was remarkably fast. But I've been in Keyhole a couple of times since then. We ran it as a meetup once. I I led a group through there for Uber Adventures. We did it at night a couple months ago with our friends. It was Jeff Sue had never done it before. And he's a friend of ours at Canyoneers. And so he wanted to go at night. And it was my first intentional night canyon. It was a blast. Car to car, we went through it in about a half an hour. And we just were having a good old time. Fun fact about Jeff Sue, who has turned down being on this podcast by the way. He was there with me when I recorded the very first recording, which then became like episode six or whatever. Fun mm-hmm. fact for anyone who wants to know more about Jeff Sue, because he will not come on here and tell you yeah. more about himself. We've run a lot of canyons with him. Him and yes, Brian hit it off real well. It didn't dawn on me, but it makes a lot of sense because I do remember that there are all kinds of particulars about whether you're allowed to guide people in the park itself, whether you're not. It didn't even dawn on me that, of course, they'd have to take you outside, train you, and then let you go yourself. So how did you feel then the day after the class going through the canyon without supervision and knowing that everything was up to you and you recalling what you were taught the day before? I was actually extremely nervous because I actually thought that it makes sense to take a class by professionals and then they would actually assist you through the canyon. Personally, I was a little nervous. I get lost, stuck, hurt, you know, all those things could happen. There's no, they didn't train us for that. So I had that in the back of my mind. What are we going to do if that were to occur? Can't, 
get a cell phone. There's no reception. So I had that in my mind. And Danielle was just like, oh, yeah, we got this. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, like anything else. Last year it was, uh, we can't do Imlay. The Narrows are closed. Ah, okay, let's do heaps. You can't spend too much of your time worried about the unknown because that's not what's ever going to get you. It's going to be the thing that was known that you didn't pay attention to. The one detail or the trifecta of details that come together. And I find in the outdoors in general, you just need to pay attention and keep your wits about you. So there's some things outside that you learn as you go. When we first started, we took a lot of pictures. Probably took what I like to call repel camp pictures, yeah, yeah. which are yes. on repel, smiling, right. looking at the camera. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, I started leading canyon trips. You really are focused on safety and rigging. You learn that a greater awareness, that amount of time spent paying attention to things like pictures creates a danger. If you're taking a picture, you're not paying attention to what's going on around you. You're just looking through the eye of the camera. You know, the longer I've been in this, I take less and less pictures. If I see someone in the canyon who's got a better camera than me, great. Now I don't have to take any pictures. As you guys might know, I shoot a lot of video of different things. And that exact issue always comes to mind. And I often have this thought, okay, do I take a camera? Do I even bother to take a GoPro this time? Or do I just let myself experience it this time without the distraction of the camera? And it goes back and forth because sometimes I do take a camera and it improves the experience because it makes me look more because I want to figure out the best, most interesting ways to capture things. So then I start to notice things that I wouldn't otherwise. But then other times you miss so much of the experience because you're focused so much on that photography. So yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I think when you're leading a group, the camera's a distraction. Yeah, I could see where it could even be a danger. It can be a danger and it's a distraction when leaders are paying more attention to the camera. When people are starting out in canyoneering, they're paying more attention to their photograph opportunities and they're not paying attention to things like giving somebody a belay or standing too close to the edge without being safety in, things like that. I will say the canyoneers that take a good camera and know what they're doing and also manage to participate in the safety and the work of the canyon, they still belay, they still bag rope, they still carry rope, they still help with all the things that need to happen to get through a canyon successfully and yet still take pictures. Those guys are awesome and those are who you want on your team. John Niehaus is a good example of that. David Doucette is an excellent example of that. Chase Mueller. These are all guys who we've been in canyons with and I didn't even really know noticed that they were taking pictures. Ben Pelletier is great about that too. Yeah. I've done canyons with Ben where at the end he shares all these photos and I had no idea he took any of them. We did a jump one time and he took all these fantastic photographs. He sent them to us later as photographs of me midair jumping off of something. I never saw him pull out that camera or put it away but somehow he managed to do that. Get the photo, run the canyon and still be ahead of everyone else at all times. Yeah. Yeah that is a particular skill that a skill. either you, you have or you have to take the time to develop. We just got back from a canyoneering trip in Spain. We went and ran Sierra de Guara and we went up into the Pyrenees. We had a gal with us named Laura Palazzolo, great film editor, um, but she just uses a GoPro. I didn't know you could talk to your GoPro. So when we were in heaps, she was talking to it. She kept saying, GoPro, take a picture. GoPro, film. That's a new feature, by the way. A year ago, I, you couldn't do I, that. I thought she was just some crazy chick talking well, to her camera. So too, I, thought, <laughs> I said, Danielle, what's wrong with her? Why is she talking to herself? And then we realized that she had this remote on her wrist. Yeah, I'm yeah. new at all this technology stuff. We're, we're not in the technology generation. <laughs> no. I, I famously don't even own a cell phone. So these are microphones. They're recording the things you say <laughs> into this device yeah. so other people will be able to hear them. Yep. So her pictures from some of our trips were stunning. Her editing from our Spain trip was stunning. And I don't remember her ever setting up cameras. Or She was invisible and constantly working. That's who you want with you at a canyon trip. You want someone like that. Since you mentioned in Spain. I don't want us to miss this opportunity. We did start here. We talked about when you did your first canyons in Zion uh -huh. and then you've branched out from there and now it's a huge part of your life and you have done things now like travel internationally. And I know when I saw you both recently, you were telling me how different it was to do canyons in Europe versus here in the States. So do you want to talk about that some for yeah. us? What I noticed was how highly regulated the sport is over there by the anchors, the trails, the maps. They even tell you what you need and what you don't need. Uh, where to park, where to exit, what kind of rope, you know, is would be recommended. Your biggest rappel. Biggest rappel, things like that on every trailhead. 
every place you go to. That is amazing to me. It's just unbelievable. And then we had the fortunate to run into a Spanish guide, and the Spanish guy was training a French guy. They came upon us on our first day. He was telling us that they're not allowed to use anything smaller than like 10 mil rope. They won't use anybody else's rope that's already in play. Their education, they have to go to school. They have to have internship hours in the field, and then they take another exam, and they have to do it every three years. So these guys are highly trained, and I was very impressed with that. It's a career there. It's a respected career. career. There's nobody dissuading them from rappelling down iconic public waterfalls. It's a sport people enjoy seeing Mm -hmm. people in the canyons, and the Swiss guides maintain the canyons and the anchors and bolts and hand lines and everything in Switzerland. We've canyoned there. Italy, same thing. Pascal Van Dun run Valbodego, which is in northern Italy. That was our first European canyon. Absolutely stunningly beautiful. And to be able to run a week and a half of canyons with Pascal was the best introduction anybody could ever have. And it really showed Brian and I how little we knew. You know, yeah. We had taken classes from three different schools, from three different organizations here in Utah and, and in California. And we go over to Europe and we realize that the canyons in Europe are completely set up differently. It's still the same. You're still rappelling. You're still using your own equipment, but everything changes. You don't use rope bags. You don't need all that gear on you because you're doing toboggans and so you want to be streamlined. You don't want to have bulky collections of paraphernalia all over your hips, you know, when you're sliding. The jumps are very technical. They do place quite a bit of stress on your body. You know, young canyoneers, all they want to do is jump the big jumps and you get to be our age and you've jumped a lot of them and you realize that, oh, those things really make you sore after five or six really big jumps. It tires you out more than you realize. The anchors are different there. We use webbing on our anchors here and people in California especially seem to be very paranoid about redundancy and two bolt backups and all of this and all of that is great but in Europe there's one or two bolts and there's big rappel rings and there's no webbing because if there was the debris when it washes through the canyons catches on it and pulls the bolts out. So you rappel right off the rings and nobody goes around chopping bolts out. The bolts are for everybody's safety. People that use the canyons respect that the Swiss guides maintain them. So nobody's adding bolts and nobody's reducing bolts. It's left alone. In the United States, we seem to have all these very strong opinions about how canyons are supposed to be set up, whether we're ghosting them or not ghosting them. There's not a sense of responsibility of whose job it is to do these things. So you've got lots of different people doing it with different opinions. So we just found that the system in Europe was efficient and organized and it made sense. Their methods made sense for what they were doing. It's all aquatic. It's all water. All the risks to your life and limb have to do with water. Um, here there's loose rock and rockfall and the environments can be you know very we've done a lot of death valley and there's no comparison between a death valley situation and something like a bolted canyon in Europe. You mentioned that the approaches were quite different and I don't think you could give more different examples than you just did when you mentioned death valley known for yeah. its uh, terrible terrible long approaches. Which is the opposite in Europe. You yeah. just get out of your car you walk down a thousand yards you're in the water course and the same with the exit. Our first European canyon was Valbadango 1, 2, and 3. Basically, you arrive, you pull your car up, you're in this steep wooded mountain with a village below you, and there's a little chalet there with picnic tables, and tons of Europeans from all over the place, all sitting out there eating cheese and bread and drinking beer, and there's wetsuits hanging everywhere, and gear, and and you basically collect your group, put your wetsuit on right next to your car, and you walk off of the roadway and into the first repel. I remember when you told me that, I said, oh, it's like Pine Creek, and you said, no, because you still have to hike you out still have to hike. Exactly. the exit is very much the same you exit mm-hmm. there's a public pool there's people playing and jumping there and there's a parking lot and you walk to your car and I know you're only there for a limited time so you maybe don't get to learn everything about issues or other problems they may have there I think in the US a concern would be well if it's this easy to get into the canyon we have to worry about inexperienced people getting into them did you get a sense that that's a problem there in Europe I think it's more like surfing is here or skateboarding the idea that somebody would go into a skateboard park that wouldn't be able to handle what they were doing or somebody who's an amateur who's never surfed before is suddenly going to decide on a big storm day to head out to Mavericks. People don't do that. Highly recognized popular sports in the United States, people have a sense of where you start and build your way into the sport. In Europe, that's what canyoneering is. It's a highly known popular sport and most of the Europeans on the recreational side seem to hire 
your guides. It's about 50 bucks a day to have a guide take you flawlessly with his own equipment into a gorgeous canyon. Why in the world wouldn't you take advantage of that? To have someone tell you, you know, you can jump from right here or you can slide over there or I'll set up a rappel for you here. Otherwise, you're walking to the top of a waterfall and you're standing there staring at it saying, is this, is this is a rappel? Is this it? Is this a slide? How long you know, is this? Do you bring enough rope? In Europe, being able to access the guides who have this wealth of knowledge of the canyons, I know here in the United States, we probably think only wussies hire guides, right? You know, we, we go out and do this stuff ourselves. We're badass. In Europe, it's a recreational sport. They don't look at it as an ego sport where you're putting notches on your wall of the big canyons you've done. It's not peak bagging. It's something that they're doing for fun and they want to have a good time and they don't want to have to worry about things. And there are plenty of Europeans that go it alone and do their own deal, but I think the vast majority probably do use the guide system. And I wonder if things will start to mirror that here a little bit more because there are now canyoneering schools whereas there were none or very few 10 years ago and and i do think it's a sport that's growing here and becoming much more recognized and popular it's still something where the average person can't recognize the difference between it and climbing there's so many people that i've explained canyoneering to showed videos and they will still call it climbing even though you're going the opposite direction well that's what canyoneering I, would to climbing is like being a failure in climbing right. i tell them we're extreme Hikers. A lot of people don't know canyoning or canyoneering, so when they say, right. what are you doing this weekend, Brian? I'm going to go climbing. Right. Yeah. Everybody knows what climbing is. Right. And I say, I'm going to go descend a waterfall or hike around in Death Valley. In Europe, they don't have the liability issues that we have. I think in particular in California, where you know between California and Utah, the bulk of canyoneers exist in these places. And other parts of the country that may even have better canyons than we do are slower to develop a community. Pacific Northwest is building a community with the support of people like Tiffany Lynn and Jake Huddleston, but it's just getting started. Arizona, they've got great canyons, but they seem to have a community that doesn't particularly love to share beta or be very public. It's very quiet. So I don't think the visibility is there in the general public to attract people into the sport. For guides to be able to make a living, they're going to have to figure out their way around the land managers because in this country, you can't go onto public property and charge people without getting some kind of permit or permission. And you can't go on private property without permission. We've got organizations like the Coalition of American Canyoneers that is working on access so that we have that permission and we've communicated with land managers. Zion is so popular in part because they've created a great permit system that works to limit the amount of people. When you pick up your permit, they ask you if you have the right equipment, if you have an in-reach, if you have wetsuits. They do their due diligence with the public to ensure that the canyons are respected and that people are descending with the right equipment and reducing the amount of injuries that make it into the media. I do also wonder if we have a couple of big differences between us here and Europe that affect this as well. Europe has a much more recognized history with mountain sports in general, just with the Alps and everything else there. There's just this hundreds of years old history of people going into the mountains and exploring mountains and a respectability there. We don't have that to the same degree here in the U.S. And then we also have an immense country that's practically the size of their continent. And the mountains are relegated to the West and everything that's mountain sports related is in those communities and then outside of those communities considered like crazy fringe activity. I do wonder if the tide is shifting on those things. I don't know. I mean, right now there's talk in the wind about limiting usage in some of the national parks for canyoneers. They are people that are looking at creating more permit systems to control or in general, when you're trying to control the amount of people that are doing sport, you're trying to limit the amount of people that are doing the sport. I don't, for example, think that in a place like Death Valley, canyoneers are a problem. They're not very many people willing to go and follow in Scott Sweeney's footsteps. Yeah, there's one person, Scott Sweeney, <laughs> and then whichever person will agree to go along with him. What bothers me most is going into, say, like Lytle Creek or Benita. Anytime we've been in there, somebody else has thrown up another anchor. Why? There's a lot of people that are doing canyoneering without training. They don't really know what they're doing. So you'll come across poorly built anchors or badly bolted canyons like San Antonio Falls earlier had an issue with that. I think the majority of canyoneers are doing it properly because you've got a big school in Southern California that is training people properly how to set up anchors. But there's also people that are learning off YouTube. You know, with the millennial generation, YouTube is the new instructor. We run across them all the time. We come across people that are repelling on cord they bought at Home Depot for 20 cents a foot or whatever it is. That 
that doesn't seem to happen in Europe. They don't have that problem there. The guides are everywhere and they seem to have a good relationship with the public. Without our national parks or our wilderness areas allowing guiding, we don't have guides. And because we don't have guides, we don't really have anybody that's responsible for the canyons. So it's all up to just whoever's trying to use them. And sometimes they're trained people and sometimes they're YouTube trained people. Me and my friend Carl have personally helped 10 college students get out of Subway in Zion safely because one of them saw a video on YouTube, said we should do that. Everyone else in the group said, great, put the trip together. They went, signed all the paperwork you have to sign that says, do you know how to do this? Do you know how to do this? Do you have the following items? And they did. They had one of each of those items, including one harness among 10 people. And none of them had ever learned to do anything using those items. And we found that out once we were in the canyon with them and half of them were stranded on a ledge. And then we had to shuttle them through the canyon. So yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. I do think it is a problem. And I'd like to segue because you mentioned the CAC and we definitely want to talk about that some more because you are now a member of that as well. But I want to talk about how you went from that first canyon to getting all that training, coming around to now traveling internationally to do it, and then eventually ending up on the CAC. So what does that path for you two look like from let's do keyhole, we don't know what the hell we're doing, so we took a one-day class to where you are now? For me personally, since I work probably harder than Danielle does at certain sports. <laughs> he, does. he does. I like to associate myself with people that are better than I am. So I think what we've slowly started to do is put trips together and just made sure we had people in our group that were at least at our experience definitely better because you can learn from others it's always the little things and i have picked up so many little things from everybody that i've done canyons with now i feel very comfortable and confident of doing stuff on our own. When we were in that first Zion trip, when we were returning our gear, the kid at Zion Adventure Company said, oh, wow, you know, you guys went and ran those canyons in the worst possible time of year. Hot, it was 106. He said, you should come back in October. It's beautiful in the fall. My ears prick up. And I said, really? I made a plan to go back. I bought my first rope from Zion Adventure Company that day. I bought a 75-foot rope. That's all we used. So that's probably all you need. We pick canyons that use a 75-foot rope. Of course, that just limits you to... Echo Keyhole in Orderville. That is an especially short rope <laughs> yeah. for your primary rope. I still right. have it. <laughs> and I'll tell you a story about that rope in a minute. Then time goes by. It's August, so two months later. We're sitting at the coffee table here and talking about the plan for the trip, what canyons we want to do. I'm reading beta. And I said, honey, I don't remember how we got a rope back. How do you get your rope back? He's like, I don't know. He showed us something. And we're sitting there. We can't figure it out. <laughs> Bear in mind that when we ran Keyhole, we did throw and go. So the rope went up into the rapide and down. There's nothing to that except that when you pull it, you pull it on one side that has the bag tied instead of the other side. I did a Google search and I found Klaus Gerhardt's Uber Adventures and we signed up and took a three-day class. I had a migraine that day, so I was going off into the bushes to throw up every 15 minutes throughout <laughs> the entire class. I'd come back and everybody would be giving me those pity looks. But, but, we got- but, it, but it's great because if you can do everything under those conditions, then you can definitely do them under ideal conditions. <laughs> oh, it was so yeah. miserable. We took our first class with him and then we went back to Zion and actually we did five or six canyons just loved it just the two of us and really enjoyed it and came back and took another class started running canyons on meetup we met some really nice people right off the bat our second class we took the group that we were with we still run canyons with and i think that's what happens in this sport it's one of the reasons that this sport is so addicting in climbing you have a climbing partner in equestrian because i have a jumping horse it's a solo sport you have a trainer and it's you and the horse and it's not as social it kind of is in the barn but it's it's not like canyoneering where you're with a group all day long or all week. You're descending together. You're reliant on each other. You're helping each other over boulders and assisting each other in life-threatening situations if you're not paying attention. So you form these bonds. So we have now this family of canyoneers that are very good friends. Those bonds are expanding. It's like those Venn diagrams, you know, we've got these interconnecting circles. So we have our Southern California friends and our European friends and our Utah friends. And we started leading for meetup with that group. Then uh, I heard about another trainer coming into LA, Rich Carlson. I took a series of his courses and thought that his style was very well suited for Brian because Brian was having some difficulties remembering some of the technical things in rigging. It matters to Brian. To me, I'm like, no, I'll figure it out later. I don't worry about that kind of stuff so much. He really wants to know everything before he moves on to the next. I wish I had a 
high school teacher like him. Yeah. Let's just put it that way. He does. He <laughs> takes his time. He watches you struggle. He'll tell you things to try. He won't grab the rope away from someone. If they're stuck, he'll show them with another set of rope. And then whatever he just did, he'll take it apart again and hand it to you. And then he'll wait while you struggle again. And he just does not give up. His patience is great. I'm not a very patient person. So I learn from people like that to when I'm leading a group to slow down and give people time. And Brian and I have been doing quite a bit of leading. I think we've led about 100 canyon trips. I really like it. I really enjoy it. I feel so passionate about the sport that it's a great thing to see someone else go and experience that thing, that light bulb moment when they stand there and go, oh, this is amazing. There are times when I start to get bored with an activity like canyoneering or climbing or whatever. And then sometimes you can go do something that you wouldn't choose to do on your own, like say Bailey Canyon. You bring someone new. I think it's a lot of the same experiences yep. people have when they have children, which is you get to re-experience those enjoyable moments of life by watching other yep. people. And then you remember, oh yeah, this was scary at some point yep. and this was super exciting at some point. And the other thing is you leave this indelible mark on people and you don't even know it at that moment until later. Speaking of Bailey, years ago, Alden and I brought Ron Lebfrom, you both know Ron, right? Yep. That was his first ever canyon. And he has mentioned to me and thanked me multiple times for that because for him, that was the beginning. He's now gone off to, he does yeah. tons of canyons, does all kinds of first descents and solo descents and things. And apparently that day left a big mark, mark on, on him, him because it was his introduction to all of that. And that's one of those really cool things is when someone then later comes and thanks you for something that you had no idea was leaving any kind of impression. Well, our first mentor was Freddie Unger. We ran probably one of the dirtiest most uninteresting canyons with him what did we do first was suicide just a bushwhack <laughs> he now claims he will quote unquote never do again but Freddie often says I will never do this again and then immediately does it a week yeah. later yeah. Uh, he's exposed us to a lot of the canyons he, at the beginning he was the guy he, he's he got a very distinctive personality and he took us into a couple meetup shitty dry canyons we just had a blast he asked us you know what are you doing in this sport and we said oh, we're just tourist canyoneers. And he mm -hmm. goes, you guys are not tourist canyoneers. You guys got to get into the Sierras. You got to come up and, and run some C-class. So he was the one that took us up and ran some C-class and really encouraged me. Hearing from someone that everybody in the community kind of respects that you know does big canyons, that person saying to you, hey, you have talent. You're good at this. You should lead. You should take other people. He had mentioned, you know, I should lead some groups of women, you know, and get more people because there aren't that many female leaders out there into the sport. So we did. Did a lot of trips with Freddie. We still do. I would have to say he got me into the C-class, the wet canyons, which are my passion. I really, really love them. I still like the dry ones too, but there's something about a waterfall. And as you're rappelling down a waterfall, you're looking down where you're going. You're never looking up unless you want to get a nose full of water. But you're looking down at where you're going. And for those that haven't done it, to describe it, it looks like sprinkling mist, like ocean spray when the ocean waves hit rocks. And they're all about you. You can't always see where your feet are, but what you do see as you get further and further into the waterfall is rainbows. Often water waterfalls are set up in such a way that the light is hitting them because they're on a cliff and you're basically descending into these crisscrossing of rainbows because the water is shooting off the walls from different directions and each direction is creating a path of light. One of our first wet canyons was Monkey Face. Monkey wow. Face is great yeah, for rainbows. Just... I've, I've descended directly through a 360 yeah. degree circular rainbow in there before. My first experience with Monkey Face was right about the same time Alden put the beta up. I'm not even sure if the beta was up yet when we did it but it was on meetup, Steve Hofstetter. I think it was his first and last ever lead on meetup, but he had invited us and it was a crack crew. The best people were on that trip. John Gray was there and a bunch of other experienced canyoneers just happened to coalesque and we were the rookies. None of us expected the water and none of us expected it to be cold. So all of us were in shorts and t-shirts. <laughs> so there's, we would descend a waterfall and then we would all run over and get on a rock and lay there and warm ourselves. And then we would get back on rappel and descend the next waterfall. And then we would jump off and go and lay on a rock and warm back up. That was just fantastic. I talked about Monkey Face so many times when we first were in this sport. We'd run it over and over again that my daughter said, I don't want to ever hear you say that again. <laughs> so, you, so Freddie helped you get into these big water canyons. Yeah. And then I know you said you just came back from the 
Pacific Northwest, which is kind of like a great haven it's for fun. big it's water canyons. Amazing. But you also happen to be there and in an opportune moment when a huge wildfire is now raging up there. So let's talk about that trip because you mentioned earlier that there were some hiccups. We decided for our first day to run Wakina. I had asked around if anybody had ran it. Someone had said that they didn't know anybody who'd ever run it. It tends to have a little higher water. We'd been in Davis Creek a week and a half before. Which is fantastic. Which is fantastic, but was kind of running moderate, moderate low. So I wanted more water. We went and checked it. Looked fine. From the bottom, it does look fine. <laughs> From the middle, it's a little different story. So we went up and that was our first day. I had a very good crew with me. Every single one of them is strong. I've done multiple canyons with everybody. So I felt very confident. And we had Jake Huddleston with us. None of us had done that canyon before, but it's very simple. Without big pools or hydraulics, you're just battling the hardness of water and falls and you're trying to find good anchor material. This canyon is exactly next to Eagle Creek, which we'd done last year. And there's other amazing canyons in that gorge. Oneonta, Bridal Veil, all of these canyons are, are very public. Wakina is a little more tucked away. It still finishes in a public view area, but in general, when you're in the canyon, it's a little shorter and smaller. And I thought that it would be a, probably a good choice. Well, the first thing I did when we got there was to track down some park rangers and let them know that we were going into the uh, canyon and make sure that it was okay. Because I know that the public in Oregon are very sensitive about the iconic tourist waterfall sites. Yeah, like you mentioned Oneonta, and I, I don't think you're supposed to repel that one at all, correct? You can. The guy that put up the rope wiki warning on Oneonta, it's kind of a urban legend okay. or an urban myth about not doing it. I had at that time checked with Luca, and he had said, you know, in his iconic way, shit. This is bullshit. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> so we had run that, and we had no problems. The main thing is just respecting the public view. If you're going to descend to the last fall and people are taking pictures, let them know before you come down that you're coming down. Don't kick rocks on people. Don't disturb the moss. There's always going to be an easy way to rappel down and a hard way. And the easy way is down the moss. Don't do it. Go down the hard way or find some halfway zone in between. In the case of Oneonta, if you go down the water course, you die. You walk the knife edge of the ridge between the waterfall and the moss carefully without penduluming and you're fine. So back to my story. I checked with the rangers. They said, you're fine to go. Have fun. We saw somebody here last year, so we know it's somebody to run it. So we hiked up and we start to descend and there are no anchors. There's a couple little logs and trees leaning into the canyon, but they're all super sketchy. I mean, the tree is a super sketchy tree and the ground there is so soft, you know, you just don't feel comfortable repelling off things like that. So we're backing everything up and there's not always a good place to back it up. You know, when you're on the top of a waterfall, there's often nothing there that you can brace your body with. So, you know, you, you clip in as a backup in case the anchor fails, but if it fails, the repeller and the anchor are probably going to pull you over the edge. So unless you can lock your body into some wedge that's strong in this canyon, we didn't find anything like that. So we start descending and the first hiccup is we look at the big fall and above us, there's a waterfall that's coming off from right to left. It's pretty strong. We decide in looking down canyon that if we repel far left, we can go down the crack and avoid that big heavy waterfall that's coming down. And this is one of those things where if we'd had someone like Luca with us that had a better eye and feel for waterfalls and what happens, we wouldn't have gotten ourselves into any trouble at all because it just didn't occur to me that that waterfall going right to left is going exactly in the direction that we're going to end up in by repelling the left side, the easy side. So we get down, first person goes down and whistles. We don't hear anything. She's not in trouble. She got down. So I go next and I see past the point of no return that the waterfall has come down and is now aiming right to the place where I'm going to go. And there's a little flute there. So I think, well, if I get into the flute, wedge myself in and just slide vertical straight down, I can avoid that big heavy waterfall. What I should have done is, is just try to get under that waterfall. So I go in the flute, the waterfall hits my pack. I forgot to take it off. We all forgot to take it off. And it just starts beating me down into this tight, tight two foot square flute. And I'm being lowered from above at the same time because we're creeping the rope. It's very sharp rock. And just about the time my foot gets wedged into the flute and sticks there where the waterfall is the heaviest on me and I no longer have any space to breathe, I can feel them lowering me. So if I stay where I'm at, I'm going to go upside down. But my foot's stuck. And Rich Carlson runs this rigging site on Facebook. And somebody just discussed this two months ago. And all I can think of is, my shoe's staying here. I'm getting my foot out of this. And I'm moving forward. Fortunately, when I screamed, the total girly scream, you know, as loud as I could, 
You can't blow a whistle in water like that. Nobody's going to hear it. So I screamed as loud as I could, hoping Angela would just jerk me out, but she didn't hear me either. I wrenched my foot out. My shoe came with my foot. It was a miracle. And I got out. That's a pleasant surprise. <laughs> so everybody after me just got hammered, except for one guy. Now, he got hammered, our friend Gunnar, but he loved it. We all came out and were like, you know, Jake and David, that's the heaviest water I ever want to be in. I never want to be in a situation like that again. Gunnar comes out beaming. He's ecstatic. He's never done anything more fun. We all just wanted to go bitch slap him. So you post these things on, on the internet. When we come back from trips, we post trip reports and we put up pictures so that other canyoneers see the situations. We did learn from Tiffany that her and Luca had run it previously. And when they saw that huge waterfall coming over, they went towards the waterfall. They repelled right. They just went right under it and went down the dry side. And she put up a picture and I just wanted to punch my computer. <laughs> so, but that wasn't the worst hiccup. That was the wake-up call that alerted you that this canyon's got some things. Right below that was basically a landslide, like monkey faces approach. There's just nothing but rubble, broken lava, wet, slippery rock. Just like a big scree field. A big scree between two waterfalls, maybe 100 feet long and 30 feet wide, and nothing else. The ground under us is mush, so any rock you step on slides because all the rocks under it are moving. So you feel like you're on an ice flow, broken bricks of basalt. So we couldn't find an anchor. And it said that there was a log. And there was a log. But we were all pretty uncomfortable with this slippery broken piece of log wedged between rubble. I pushed on it. I pulled on it. I pushed on it some more. We looked for other things. We talked about making a cairn. And finally we decided that we would repel off of it. But I'd back it up. So there was one rock off to the side covered in moss. And I basically straddled it like you would a horse. Sat on the ground. Leaned back. Got ready. Chased walks back, gets to the lip of the waterfall, starts to rappel down, and all of the rock under the log slides. Log slid down about three feet, and now I have on my harness a man, a rope, a log. And it was actually surprisingly comfortable. I had recently just bought a brand new pencil harness that's designed for canyoneers. It distributes weight really easily. You know, I always thought if I had to brace somebody like that, I would like screw up my low back or it would hurt. No problem. So he ascended back up. You know, he called out, should I go down or ascend? And you're like, please come back up. <laughs> so my main concern with him continuing down was that the log would continue sliding down. And then end up on his head. Yes, yeah. most definitely. So he came back up and we decided that the rock that I had braced myself on could be wrapped and used as a rappel and then we would finish the canyon and go on rope wiki and tell people you know we did it it was awesome don't do it <laughs> those are always convincing yeah. we, took a, like we took a passage from tom jones is we did this canyon so, so you, so don't, you don't, have don't have to, to. that's yeah. what he says about lower refrigerator right yep so <laughs> there we are we finish and there's this euphoric bonding that happens after a canyon when anything hiccupy goes on everybody gets together we all share food we all picnic we take off our wetsuits we weren't actually going to take off our wetsuits we were going to keep them on and run down to bridal veil and run that one and we look over our shoulders and there's this atomic bomb cloud right over our heads and we jump in the cars and we start driving away and there's this huge plume of smoke from the canyon that had been next to us we'd finished the canyon around 2 30 picnicked and we actually were driving away about four went to gunnar's house and looked at the news and eagle creek is on fire. And of course, for those that don't know the area, the Columbia River Gorge is one of our national treasures. It is probably the most beautiful river gorge in terms of waterfalls and views in the United States. And to see that burn down like that was just heartbreaking. Anyone that's ever gone to the website for this podcast, the canyon photos at the top of the page are from Eagle Creek and Bridal Veil, both of which may no longer exist in that so, capacity. So there's some pictures that are up right now. A local girl that we met when we were there on this trip, uh, she put out some pictures on Facebook of what it looks like right now. It actually looks not as devastating as I thought. I thought it was going to look like, you know, when you have a fire in, here in California, it looks like an atomic bomb went off. There's nothing but charcoal left. It does look like it was spotty. So some of the bottom areas look like they might have been saved a bit. So there is some greenery and the, you know, the waterfalls aren't going anywhere. I think the real damage is going to happen after the rains. Right. And all of mm -hmm. that mud landslides. and rock and landslides yeah. and the trails, it might be a decade before the trails are all put back. And in terms of the trees, it's probably going to be not in our lifetime. Yeah. So don't bring fireworks into areas where fireworks don't belong. Yeah. yeah. So they're saying fireworks, but just to clarify, the low Locals were pretty clear in interviewing the woman who saw the kids throwing the fireworks that they were basically stuffing fireworks into bottles 
jammed with some kind of accelerant and they were trying to make smoke bombs and they were throwing them down off the trail and then they were exploding. So it doesn't sound as much like fireworks as Molotov cocktails. And just ignorant stupidity. You know, I mean, it's a sad thing because on the one hand, they're 15 year old kids. There's a group of them and one in particular is getting all the blame, but it was a complicit group of teenagers. But you know, I've got kids. I had teenagers. None of my kids did anything that stupid, but some of their friends. My son once knocked over a porta potty at the local elementary school. So, you know, kids <laughs> kids do silly stuff. And you think, well, that's more than silly, right? Except that we've got this massive generation of children who are not being raised the way I was raised. They don't understand how incendiary fire is and the damage that it can cause. They spend all their time hooked up to technology and watching TVs and on their phones. I actually like the direction you're going with this because I think a lot of people's knee-jerk reaction in these situations is, see, this is why we have to keep people out of these places, which I think is what got us into the situation in the first place. When you take people out of the environment and make them ignorant of it, they no longer know how to interact with it. And I think reintroducing people into it is what gets them to not do dumb shit like this in the future. My hope with these kids that did this is that they're going to get sentenced to work on the trails, replant the trees, help fix the trails. Uh, We've had that happen in California before. We had an arsonist here in Santa Barbara decades and decades ago who was then assigned to work the hand crews to repair the damages that he'd done. He ended up becoming a firefighter. You know, these kids, yeah, they're 15 years old, but I'm a preschool teacher and I can say that his developmental IQ is probably closer to the kids that I work with every day, especially if he's not getting out in nature, especially if his idea of nature is throwing fireworks into a canyon. He's not doing the kind of nature that I did when I was little. So on the one hand, I fault the young generation that's not getting out and doing these things. I know a lot of kids are but there are a lot of kids that are not. They need to get outside more. They need to get dirty. Every time my sister calls me and complains about what her kids are up to, I say, your kids need to sweat. The solution to every problem with youth is sweat. They need to get outside. They need to get dirty. They need to do something hard and survive and then feel proud of their accomplishment, no matter what it is. I don't care what sport or not a sport, just throwing rocks, skip rocks. I just don't think it's wise to limit ourselves to only be able to function in urban areas, which compose a tiny, tiny portion of the entire planet. It's like when I meet people who say they don't know how to swim and I say, well, 70% of the earth is water. Do you not want to be able to interact with 70% of the environment of this planet. Do you only want to be able to function in large metropolitan areas or do you want to be able to function on the planet as a whole? I think it's one of the reasons Brian and I like leading groups of canyoneers, whether it's on a Facebook group we've organized or whether it's a meetup. I lead for a group called Canyoneering Karma now that Rich Carlson invited me to. You never know what you're going to get. You you set up an event and people sign up and then you send them messages and ask what their training or experience is and sometimes they have none. Do you want to take them? Well, yeah, I'll take them somewhere safe. Make sure that they've got the proper gear and show them. So then that's the trip you're doing. You're mentoring somebody and seeing if they like the sport and you're gentle and slow. Or it's a super experienced group that you've organized and you're doing something and you're all relying on each other. But I like it and I like to share my enthusiasm because it's an amazing sport and it's not just for the people that are doing the big canyons. They had to start somewhere. I had to start somewhere. Freddie Unger had to take a risk that I wasn't gonna get into trouble or hate it or be a drag. And I I gotta say my our first Eaton Canyon trip Brian and I crawled out of Eaton Canyon miles behind Bronick and Shane and Francisco and Fabe and the whole group of at that time the hardcore awesome canyoners everybody wanted to run canyons with and we had the wrong shoes and our feet were aching we were freezing miserable and you know Freddie walked out with us he didn't leave us he slowed down and walked out with us and we were so far behind them that by the time we got to the cars they were already ordering food at the restaurant <laughs> But, you know, he actually went on another canyon with us. I think this dovetails nicely into discussion of the CAC because we're talking about mentorship at this point. We're talking about conservation. So if you would explain to everyone what the CAC is and then what you now becoming a board member means about what your future looks like. I knew about the CAC right away because when we took our first class and I had done my Google research looking for where I could get training, their website came up and I bookmarked it. It's got good links. It's got every other organization that you would want to be affiliated with is listed on their website. They've got a list of guides, a list of schools, a list of gear, a list of places you can get beta, which is basically the roadmaps that we use to descend a canyon, knowing how many rappels and how long of rope we need and where the 
parking spots are and that kind of thing. I was asked to run for the board and I ran and I was just elected and we just had our first meeting. I'm not super well versed yet as a rookie board member, but their mission is to basically protect and preserve the canyons, access to the canyons, to help resolve access issues and communicate and work with land managers so that we can get into these places often that are in public or privately held land. And then also they have cleanup efforts that they do where we go into, especially here in, in California, go into canyons and usually the last rappel becomes a public place. And in Los Angeles, unfortunately, that means trash graffiti, drug paraphernalia, you name it. We'll organize a cleanup and we'll go in and uh, use um, pretty hardcore equipment, mostly sand and water and scrub brushes and muscle power to remove as much graffiti as possible to make the space beautiful for the public again. So that's kind of what the CAC does. The main issue being access and a resource for canyoneers in general. It's a nonprofit organization. Anybody can join. It's free to join. It takes like two seconds. So I get on the board. Not great at technology. Apparently the first board meeting was a couple nights ago and it was a conference call. <laughs> I just pictured you and Brian like with a computer trying to figure out what Skype is. What do we do? <laughs> so I'm getting all these messages from Tiffany and Rick, you know, where are you? And I'm like, I don't know what to do. So one of them sent me a, a link. I get on and right away I'm hearing voices on the phone. And you know, when I was a kid, we had a phone called a party line because our house didn't have electricity. It didn't have a phone, didn't have anything. So we were truly off the grid. So what a party line is, is way out in the field when you first drove on the dirt road to the property was a box and in the box was a phone and way down the road 15 miles away somebody had another box like that and it's all the same phone line so when you pick up the phone if somebody using that other phone line way down the ranch way is also on the phone you have to hang up and wait till they get off the phone before you can make a call so it's kind of like how you have multiple phones in your house it's kind of like a string and two tin cans it's just like that over a long distance so when I was a kid we had a party line and it was way out in the middle of nowhere in the dirt you know needless to say we didn't really use the phone so I've got this conference call I got to do I get on and there's all these voices going and I'm like oh I know what this is so I said hey guys I'm here and I hear this collective yay start taking notes you're the secretary I'm like what okay so I start taking notes, but I, I can't possibly be the secretary. Nobody voted me in, but apparently they did. <laughs> apparently I was late, and so they voted me secretary, and I think Tiffany was a little late too, and they voted her president. So, <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, we have our first retreat coming up, and I'll get to meet these people that I admire in person, which will be quite nice. But I just enjoy the opportunity to serve. That's why I like running meetups. It's my time to serve the community, and it's great to be able to do it with Brian. I mean, we have run very few canyons without it being the two of us. So now I have to ask a question specifically for Danielle that anyone listening to this who knows Danielle would not allow me to do a whole podcast without asking. Why do you hate blue webbing? It's not just blue. I am all about inclusiveness and diversity, and I equally hate blue, red, yellow, purple, all of them. So, yes, Danny needs a guy from out in Utah made me a beautiful badge. I wish people could see Brian's face right now. (laughs) Brian is just cringing and getting into the fetal position. Well, no, actually, there was one. We had this discussion before where... A few times. If it's a good piece of webbing... So I don't know what canyon it was, but she was ahead and I saw her over there, you know, with her hand on it like this. And I could tell it was new just from the distance. And she was going like this with her hand on the webbing. And I told her, you can change it if it needs to be changed. (laughs) If it looks good, set it up. So Brian, is your voice of reason? I don't think that's reasonable. (laughs) She's like... (laughs) So let me explain it. Okay. So here's the deal. When you are walking up the LSA trail or some of these other very public trails. Some of the anchors are within view of the trail. And when you're using purple and red webbing and you've got six pieces of webbing on one anchor, because every single new person that comes doesn't trust the other pieces of webbing, so they'll add more and add more. So you get this big clusterfuck of webbing. It looks like graffiti from the trail. If you're going into a canyon like Monkey Face, where nobody can see the anchors, I could care less what color it is. Well, I do. I think it's ugly in photographs. <laughs> but it's not as much of a big deal to me. So All right, so, so this is for everyone to know now. If it's not visible from the trail, it doesn't bother Danielle as much as you may think. Exactly. And I will say that a bright red webbing saved us in Pittman 
a couple of years back. We were following the beta. This is the definition of irony. Yes, yes. it really is. We were following the beta, and it says at wrap seven, exit through the forest. And we just started the canyon. We're way up at the top. We're looking down going, exit the forest, why? That doesn't make any sense. And one of the betas from a guide company had said that there were 13 repels. And I said, put the betas away. It can't be true, it can't be. And we start down climbing, and Brian's standing there, and he's looking way in the distance. He goes, hey, look way down there. I see red webbing. So then we knew that the canyon, you could continue. You didn't need to exit. And so in the case of a canyon like that, I will concede. <laughs> it looks like you're in pain as you say this. <laughs> so needless to say, I use green webbing in Pacific Northwest and black webbing in Death Valley. And in Utah, I try to use tan or brown. And Come on, guys. Like, have a little feng shui. You take these beautiful pictures. Do you really want to see bright purple? Or, oh, God, that webbing, the truck strapping that was in U-Turn or Dragonfly or one of these canyons that we oh, ran yeah. with um, a group last year in the Arches, Moab. Yeah, the Moab. Yeah, there was this 50-foot-long piece of neon green webbing that had skull and crossbones all down the whole thing. <laughs> Did you get the shakes just looking at it? It had a slight fit. It was a slight <laughs> fit. But uh, it's funny because I, I built a dead man anchor with a little tiny piece of webbing. The group I was with was not comfortable rappelling off a, a dead man. They were climbers and they did not like that. They much preferred the 30 feet away rock wedged in a crack. But to me, it's about the experience of the canyon and leaving the canyon better than you found it and not leaving bright stuff hanging off trees. People in the Pacific Northwest are really good about in the public areas using retrievable anchors. They use anchors up there that don't stay at all. They go with them. There's nothing within the public view because, you know, you always have that concern that some teenagers are going to see some piece of webbing and they're going to think, oh, let's climb down here. Yeah, we just had that this past weekend up there. Yeah, we used retrievables yeah. in multiple places and that left is. no webbing behind. I mean, in Europe, they don't use webbing at all. So, <laughs> just saying. They jump everything and slide. Yeah, but I do have my own badge. It says Sheriff Monroy, Webbing Police, <laughs> and then right below it it says prepare to be inspected. Who did you get that from? Danny in Utah. Danny needs. I think I'm going to get it laminated and cut it out and pin it to my. Uh, you should do that, and then you should run canyons with Ryan Payne, who has the Canyon Police helmet. Exactly. See, just like that. <laughs> Ryan's awesome. We ran lower salmon with him a couple months ago, and someone had brought a big unicorn mask, like a Halloween costume mask. He put it on. It was not easy to put it on with a helmet. But he got it over the helmet, he put it on, and he wore it throughout the canyon. So we have these crazy pictures of a unicorn descending waterfalls in salmon. As one should. As one should. So I think we should probably start wrapping things up, especially now that we got that webbing discussion out got of the that way. Cleared up. So where are some places online that you'd like to direct people to either find out more about CAC, Coalition of American Canyoneers, or see some of your trip reports or anything else that you'd want people to see? Definitely RopeWiki, just like it sounds, R-O-P-E-W-I-K-I.com. RopeWiki is the source for beta for the instructions of canyons. So once you get into canyons, finding where they are, what they look like, reading trip reports, uh, all of that is located on RopeWiki. You know, I'm on Facebook, so I post all the pictures and of our trips and what we're doing and I organize groups and things. That's right. Despite what you say about your inability to use technology, you have definitely figured out how to use Facebook. I've got yes. that down pat. Yeah, I use it with my preschool business and so that's no problem. CAC, Coalition of American Canyoneers, has links on it to everywhere else. There's websites out in Utah, canyoningusa.com, which is Tom Jones. I hope I'm saying that right, but that's Tom Jones' site through Imlay Rope Company. It's a great place to buy your rope for the kind of canyons we do here in the West United States. Imlay Rope Company is really great. That's where we started. What else? The ACA. I don't know the name of the website offhand, but they run a meetup. They are a good resource for guides and classes. In Southern California, there's Uber Adventures. They have classes. You know, here in California, that's two places that teach, ACA and Uber, and in Utah, uh, Utah, they've got a lot more. They got a lot out there. In Las Vegas, there's a, a new couple, just like Brian and I, that's running a gear shop and starting to do canyons uh, called In We Go Canyoneering. Sandy and Brad, very nice. So I think, uh, you know, if people want to get into this, look for it on Facebook, look for it through the CAC, one of the links on the website. And so before we finish this off, something I always like to have people do at the end is just leave a final thought or maybe a thing we didn't discuss or just something important you think that you'd like the audience to know before we go. Well, for me, for canyoneering is get exposed to other things, not just one thing. Find someone that's better than you and learn from them. It makes you stronger. Take different classes from different people and go to Europe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
go to Europe. Take some classes, get trained. I can't say enough about training. There's always training going on somewhere. If you want to travel, you could get training in Zion. How awesome is that, that you can go in and take a class right in the place where canyoneering was born here in the Western United States and get someone to mentor you. Work in the canyon. When you go in your first canyon, don't be a passenger. Bag rope, carry stuff. Listen, follow directions. Because if you're running canyons and you're an asset, you'll be invited. You'll be included. If you're not, you won't. And just get outside, whether you're doing canyoneering or hiking or horse riding or whatever sport you're, you're enthusiastic about. You need to do it and get your kids doing it. And don't throw fireworks God, no. in nature. <laughs> and so with that, we will go ahead and finish this up. So thank you for having us at your house and making us lemonade and, <laughs> and uh, sitting down and yakking into technical devices from the future. Yeah, I know. It's really scary stuff. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. So here we are, over two months since it began, and the Eagle Creek fire is still burning. It has been 50% contained for quite some time. There's no expectation for it to grow further, but it has not been entirely extinguished. So keep that in mind next time you are dealing with any sort of incendiary materials in nature. And on a happy note, should you want to learn more about the things we discussed on today's show or see photographs of the Monroys in action, you may do that by going to our website, gogetoutside.com slash podcast. Find this episode 58 with Danielle and Brian Monroy, and there you will find a number of really cool photographs of them doing the things they do and all of the links we discussed on today's show, of which there were many valuable links. So if you're interested in canyoneering or would like to get involved in canyoneering, go to the website. Lots of links there that can help you out, not the least of which is AmericanCanyoneers.org, home of the CAC, where Danielle is now a board member. It's a great place for you to go and find a way to get involved with making the canyoneering community a stronger, better community. And while you are already interacting on the internet, doing your homework for this show, you may as well contact us here. Go at ButcherBirdStudios.com. You can send us an email. Let us know what you think about this or previous or future shows. Or maybe you don't want to send us an email. Perhaps you would prefer to speak directly to an automated voicemail device. Well, you can call 818-925-0106 and do just that. You can leave us a message of up to three minutes and let us know what you have to say. And please run to your podcast purveyor of choice. Make sure you subscribe to this show. And if you would, rate the show, review it, and share it with someone who might like it. The Go Get Outside podcast is brought to you by ButcherBird Studios, produced, recorded, and with additional editing by me, Jason Milligan, your host, and primarily edited by Griffin Davis. Next time on the show, Matt Podolsky, biologist, conservationist, podcaster, documentary filmmaker, and champion for a better earth. Come back December 1st, Matt Podolsky. See you then. <laughs>